this week on Dig Me Out. Jay, we're back again with another episode thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. And Jay, this is, we haven't done one in a while. We skipped uh, August, but this is our September roundtable. And we've been talking about this one for a while. It's come up on the Discord, was suggested actually over two years ago on the Discord that we do this. And we're finally getting around to it. We've talked about these bands, or some of them. We'll figure out which ones they were. Yeah. It's a garage rock roundtable. Is it garage and rock or garage rock revival? Garage rock. Well, <laughs> that's a good question. Was it a revival that happened in the 90s leading into the 2000s where you saw a lot of bands with the in the name of the band? <laughs> yeah. Uh, all starting to like gain some sort of minor popularity, whether or not they were truly garage rock or not, but they had the sound maybe right. of garage rock. But there was sort of a revival, and and maybe we can get in the specifics of this whole lineage with our um, our subject matter expert uh, that we brought brought in. He could probably do a TED talk on this. Welcome back <laughs> to the show, Mr. Eric Peterson. Hi, hello, Eric. hello. Thank you for spending your Saturday morning with us. We hope you've had your scone and your <laughs> cup of, uh, of uh, freshly pressed coffee. Donuts uh, and coffee. There you go. Perfect. That is, that's the breakfast of champions, according to John Belushi. Little, little chocolate donuts. Um, so we have talked about a variety of bands on this podcast that could either be considered garage rock or garage rock adjacent, right? Um, some that maybe you've even suggested over the years, which by the way, we're coming up on Halloween soon. Gonna need your pick. Eric is our official Halloween picker. Yeah, well, this year's pick, which I've been, you know, last year I kept it very close to the vest with a lot of hints. This year I've been very open about what it is. It's four non-blondes. Anyway, it's scary for a lot of people, but not in the the way that it usually is. (laughs) It's a different kind of scary. So, At any rate, yes. Uh, I want to ask you really quickly, what do you guys understand as the the origins of the idea of garage rock? Jay, you want to take a shot at that? I think of it as, well, one, it's at least in the, U, in the U.S., because my quick research here is that I, what I think of garage rock is probably different than it is in the U.K., but at least in the U.S., it is a suburban sort of um form of like lo-fi rock music that's people playing in the garage basically like you okay. want to get that like ambient garage sound and then musically it's like some mix of soul r&b and i feel like it's got to have the role in the rock to be truly garage rock i will get into like all of the sort of tentacles that have come mm-hmm. off of it but when i think of the classic garage rock sound it's like that combination of a sort of diy gritty group of people in a garage making music that has some kind of r&b blues do you, do you have a song or, or a, a two songs that you think of as being the classic garage rock songs um 
Is it eight? Was it ninety-eight tiers or ninety-six tiers? Ninety-six one, tiers that, by question mark the mysterious. Yes, um, that's one that comes to mind. Okay, and that is considered to be one of the great garage rock songs. And because I'm from Michigan, I'm obli- uh, obligated to mention they're from Saginaw. <laughs> <laughs> would uh, would Louis Louis the Ki- by the Kingsmen be considered like a yes. garage rock? Because that's sort of my to to piggyback on what Jay said. I think of like sort of primitive, um, you know, you're not going to get like an incredibly um, uh, uh, proficient solo mm-hmm. out of it. The, it's going to be very fuzzy in some respects, uh, whether the vocals are, are fuzzy or the, or the guitar. There's just going to be some aspect of it's going to be noisy because it's, it's a lo-fi recording done by almost an amateurish, uh, you know, yeah. approach. Um, and that's the 60s approach. I'm not saying that sure. that's like what continued to happen because obviously recording techniques change and but, it's easier to pop a you know laptop in your garage and make it sound better. So so my understanding has always been and probably the best example of this is that the movie That Thing You Do. It is young musicians, usually high school, maybe college age, who uh, were inspired by the British invasion, meaning the Beatles, of course, and the Stones, but also very much the Trogs, the Kinks, and the Animals, uh, who had enough money to put together a single, to have a car or a van to travel to gigs, and were playing teen shows in the 1960s for their high school friends or high school dances or frat parties, and either revved up classic blues songs or wrote very basic rock and roll songs. And the reason they sound the way they do is not because of intent, but because of the limitations of recording. Once again, that thing you do amazingly shows what that looked like. Yeah. So that is my understanding of what the original garage rock was. And then because mainly in the U.S., uh, but also to a certain degree in Canada and in uh, the U.K. and in Australia, these uh these were basically very minor leagues for a lot of musicians that went on to later be bands like ZZ Top or Leonard Skinnerd or Neil Young. Um, and besides those examples that lasted, there was, you know, every major town or even little town had a school band that, you know, in 1968 played along, you know, played the school dances and half the kids went to college, the other half went to Vietnam. Because mainly they were male, but they left a great legacy. And if anybody really wants to dig into that, there is the Nuggets box sets, which are 100% worth your time. And then just one more thing about that is there is an audible sound difference between the bands that came out of, say, L.A. and New York or San Francisco, where there was a large musical community already, and the bands that came out of Seattle, Fort Worth. In Detroit, where it was a lot more blue collar people and a lot of people who, and this is important to what we're going to be talking about, who were influenced by the music that people brought to those areas to work in blue collar industries after World War II. There's a great scene in the MC5, a true testimonial, where they talk about because of all the immigrants from around the country that they would have Merle Haggard come out and play that locally, or you'd have uh you know, John Coltrane, or you would have, you know, Sam Cooke, you would have all of these desperate musical sounds for different communities that would come through and they would just go see everything. 
and you can hear that in the music. Yeah. I think it's interesting that it's um it's it's one capturing the sound of a garage band. It's like turning mm-hmm. that into a genre and an aesthetic and then two it's uniquely suburban because you have to have the garage. <laughs> it it right? is, but at the same time you find a lot of upper class people that that especially you get to like San Francisco or LA or New York. And then you definitely do find a certain amount of, of um, like smaller town people. So I, you know, the suburban thing is there, but there's definitely also a lower class, like working class kind kind of, sure. of thing going on, especially right. when you get to like Chicago, you get to Fort Worth where the oil industry was booming. You get to Seattle where aerospace industry was booming. But the thing that I think, I sort of wonder was, so when you look at the term garage music in, in the UK, it seems like it's more like lo-fi electronic music. Mm-hmm. And it started, I started to think about, well, in the U in the North America, you know, most blue collar people have a house with a garage if you don't live in an apartment. Yeah. And like, as you know, being in a band, like the person that has the garage that you can practice in is like, <laughs> you know the the golden ticket that everybody's looking for um mm-hmm. and, and somebody who owns a drum kit is the second one um so it's really interesting that it's it's kind of location specific in that way like sure. you couldn't really have a garage band in an urban area that's in apartments because you can't have a band playing in an apartment um and then packaging them all that up and then i think we get into the rival revival part where it's like well i can take that sound and make that sound anywhere mm-hmm. right it's very regional in a way that a lot of music scenes were i think the thing that i was interested in i remember reading this somewhere or maybe it was in a documentary about the beatles because there's you know there's been a few about the beatles and um how many of those sort of suburban kids kids here in the united states had not heard people like chuck berry or little richard or bo diddley because they were black artists and the way they discovered them was by getting a beatles record and going oh this song wasn't written by the Beatles. It was bit written by Chuck Berry. And then they pick up a Chuck Berry 45 and are like all of a sudden exposed to, you know, Bo Diddley and Eddie Cochran and all these people that they never heard of before. And, and some of the, and you mentioned Jay, the R and B and soul aspect. I mean, that's a whole huge swath of, of the sound, the, the blue scale being used. I mean, you hear that, up yeah. until, you know, stuff that we were listening to with the helicopters utilizing the blues scale for these revved up garage rock sounds. But what, I think what where that might come from is what Eric pointed out was like, you know, you at that, if you go back to like the 60s and 70s, like you wanted to be the band that could be hired to play the school dance. So you mm-hmm. need to play dance music. You need to play things people can dance to. Covers. <laughs> yep. Right. People know. So you're learning R&B because that's, you know, danceable. and. Like if you actually want to get a gig, that's the, you know, the repertoire you need to know. I mean, obviously they liked it. It was big at the time, but that's so the seed of, you know, well, that's now core to what you consider like a classic garage rock sound is, you know, making music that's kind of a primitive dance music. Sure. So does, let's, let's sort of move along in through the decades so we can reach our revival point. It seems like garage goes through a lot of evolutions in the 60s you get like the bubblegum version of garage rock um you get um the linkage with like rockabilly 
um, surf, mm-hmm. you know, with with like Dick Dale or Link Ray or or like those kind of guys, uh, which are just guitarists more so than like song, you know, band type folks. And then you get like into the seventies. Is that where it sort of starts to morph into, um, a little? You know, when I think of like seventies punk or proto punk, think of like like you mentioned the MC Five, Iggy and the Stooges. So yes, um, I'm going to make the argument that when we talk about the garage rock revival, which I will refer to as high energy rock and roll, because that's what I've always thought of as the best descriptor of this sound. That to me, the first major band that had an impact anywhere that released records and that's still relevant today that took this sound is actually Radio Birdman, who have their bassist right here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, with their guitar player and a leader having gone to high school here. And he goes to Australia to go to medical school on the Navy's dime. He takes with him his influences from the Stooges and the MC5, but also Blue Oyster Cult and surf music and combines all of those into this high energy sound that um, basically is the first real big mixture of a lot of these sounds in a coherent way that starts to revive the idea of rock and roll that, you know, young, loud and snotty, by the way, that's a dead boys reference. who I think of the next band that need to be talked about. Right. But there is a reason that there are three volumes of these high energy bands from the nineties covering radio Birdman. It's because of that sound and radio Birdman, while they're not really known in the States, 100% are, are in the top five bands in Australia that really start the Australian rock underground punk rock scene. And does that sort of feed back to the United States with regards to where the punk movement explodes both on the East Coast in the 70s with the Ramones mm-hmm. and and the New York scene, which can get a little bit more arty than just straight yeah. up punk. You get the talking heads, you get Blondie, you get the the no wave scene there that sort of goes off in a different direction. But then on the West Coast, you start to get the like, you know flat flag and the descendants are in this those are 70s starting so bands. before them you have you have the nuns you've got the dills you've got um the zeros you've got x you've got the avengers you've got all of these bands coming out of san francisco and la and if you go and look a whole lot of them on their initial recordings and their live sets they're playing covers of 60s garage rock standards like good guys don't wear black or sometimes good guys don't wear white and have love will travel and dirty water and all of all of those things that were popular in in you know 10 years earlier um that becomes the basis for a lot of their of their sets you know the the original fleetwood back somebody's going to get their head kicked in tonight gets played a lot so yeah there a lot of punk um is taking those 60s garage rock you know, back to basics, rock and roll ideals and filtering them through the influences of what's happened since 1968 and putting them on stage with uh, kids. Once again, usually a lot of young people uh, bringing that energy to, you know, small clubs where other kids can go and dance and meet each other and hang out without the 
like quote progressive rock wall of you know professionalism or whatever and that that's going to be a re- reoccurring theme coming from the original garage rock scene which is the back to basics rock and roll the clash and the damned and the pistols but also all of these these la bands like like i said the, the avengers especially you know they're covering paint it black doing the these revved up versions of 60s songs And then we see that again at the end of the 80s, and then we see it at the beginning of the 90s, and then we see it once again when we get to the high-energy rock era of the late 90s. And it seemed like, um, in doing my research, that there was like an 80s kind of revival, but it was very underground. Yes. In regards to like the Pandoras and the Fuzz Tones and Chesterfield Kings that were doing garage rock, but it was not something that the mainstream was aware of in any way, no. shape, or form. Um, it was this whole whole underground movement, and a lot of it was California centric. A lot of it was around Bomp Records and the underground's fanzine, or the I'm sorry, the Ugly Things fanzine. Gotcha. Um, a lot of bands writing their own songs in that style, but also uh, covering a lot of the the songs from the '60s that wound up on the Nuggets compilation or other places. And and we should mention we've talked about Australia a little bit, but like we're talking about this from a you know, a U.S. perspective, mm-hmm. but there were garage rock scenes in Latin America, in New Zealand, and Australia, um, Europe. Jay mentioned that there was sort of a different approach to what the garage rock rock sound is. Um, Shocking nobody. There was a massive one in Sweden, Denmark, <laughs> and a little bit of Finland, and a little bit of Norway, which kind of. Um, is the forerunner to a, a lot of the high energy stuff of the nineties when, when that becomes one of the epicenters and looking at that scene from the nineties, the, the four big, you know, geographical areas that we see bands coming from are definitely Australia, the U S and then right. the Nordic countries. Well, I think even, uh, the ACDC guys, like they, they weren't in a, a garage rock band, but their older brother was. Yes. Yes. And what kind of makes sense when you when you listen to ACDC, you go, oh, well, this is very stripped down. It's just slower. It's not high mm-hmm. energy. It's just more. I, I think it has a high. I think ACDC has an energy. I just don't think the energy necessarily yeah. comes from the tempo. Right. Yeah. It's like it's a more of a power. Like they yes. went with the power route. And a lot of garage rock is more about like the kinetic, just sort of over the top energy. Hyperactivity right. almost. Are the Saints considered garage rock or are they are more leaning into the punk rock end? So they started off 
more considered to be part of the punk rock end. But as you get in, as you find with so many bands that start off as young, quote, amateurs, that, you know, as they become more proficient with their instruments and their songwriting and their studio usage, that over time they become more refined, they become more skilled, they become more, um, I don't know, what's what's the word? Um, I guess, you know, professional is what it comes down to. Because if you get to like the third or fourth Saints album, it's definitely more R&B. It's more, um, you know, uh, more blues based, you know, less frenetic. But, you know, Radio Birdman and the Saints are basically the two bands that you can point to in Australia as this is where punk starts. This is where what becomes alternative and then becomes high energy rock and roll starts. And once again, one of the ways you can tell that is by how many of the bands we're talking about covered those artists or well, played with that, them later on. That also feeds back because a lot of what was happening in the 80s in Australia with these bands and then the scientists and Kim Salmon uh, is directly influencing what's going on in Seattle. Yeah. Because Mud Honey, before they're even Mud Honey, is like listening to this stuff. And it's getting spread around the scene. And I think Mudhoney's even early shows they were playing in Seattle or playing in Australia and, you know, playing with these bands. So that's when you get like this sort of echo chamber happening back and forth where um, we don't think of Seattle as being a garage rock, quote unquote, scene. But in reality, a lot of those 80s Seattle bands were very influenced by the Can garage I quote, quote Weird Al here? <laughs> Just a garage band from Seattle. There you go. Smells like Nirvana. So you are right. We don't call them a garage rock scene, but there most definitely was. You've got Estrus Records. You've got Sub Pop releasing a lot of more garage oriented um, bands and whatnot. Uh, garage Shock, I believe, comes out of Seattle, which is kind of the forerunner to this whole 90s uh, high energy scene. And 100%, especially as the internet comes online and people are more connected. People in these these places figure out these connections and they start uh, feeding back towards each other. But, you know, just to back up a minute, I did mention the Dead Boys out of Cleveland who uh, are part of the New York punk scene. But if you listen to their output, it's 100% more, uh, you know, echoing the garage rock, but also the Stooges, mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, the MC5, the Stooges, Radio Birdman, all of those sounds play into what people start amalgamating into grunge really you know the idea that it's you know part black sabbath part big black you know part black flag just what 
what amount of those elements is what made the quote Seattle scene. Once again, it is also that the, you know, the marketers come in, they go, oh, we're going to call it grunge. When really it's once again, just a reduction to rock and roll. It's, I believe it was Dave Grohl that said, it's all just going back to Louie Louie and reinventing Louie Louie for each generation. And that's what these bands are doing. And the way I was introduced to the Dead Boys <coughs> was Pearl Jam. <coughs> because they covered Sonic Reducer. Yes. And I had never, you know, even though I lived in Cleveland, <laughs> like for not as long as Jay, but I did live in Cleveland for a number of years. And I didn't know who the Dead Boys were. I wasn't that tuned into like the scene or anything, or even like Rocket from the Tombs and like that kind of stuff. Um, I literally went to high school with the stepdaughter of one of the Stooges. I did not hear the Stooges until uh, the singer from the band Adam West, who were part of this high energy scene, said, you guys are from Ann Arbor. How come you don't listen to the Stooges? And we're like, my brother and I are like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean. My my parents my parents were involved with a midwife group that the uh, that the manager from the MC five and his wife were involved with and we had no clue. <laughs> I mean, it, in Ann Arbor in the eighties, the MC five and the Stooges were not talked about. Iggy was just somebody that the parents were like, "No, he's disgusting. You don't want to know anything about him." <laughs> he's a boogeyman. Yeah, uh, we had a, a lunchroom supervisor that would not let us have MTV on in the, you know, when we were in the library during rainy days at lunch because they might show a video of Iggy Pop peeing on the crowd. Oh my God. The, those, none of those bands were, I mean, the 70s and 80s, they just weren't supported by any radio in that region. I know. Yeah, no. Yeah. The Dead Boys, there was no place for the Dead Boys to be supported, even in like a, a late night show or some like, you know, get a drop here and there, or even talked about like it was, college yeah, radio, maybe, fit. but maybe if you, if you're lucky to have a cool college station and more to the point, and this was asked in the Ramones documentary at end of the century, why were the Ramones not played on the radio? I mean, we're talking about this, this band that in hindsight is super like close to power pop. They're, they're not that far away from cheap trick who was on the radio, but the Ramones could not get on the radio and you know what's crazy now is that you i will hear them on classic rock radio. they'll play yeah, oh, yeah. bop you know or i want to be sedated after playing triumph and then leading into a poison song yeah. like it doesn't make any sense <laughs> well it's because time has shown us that yeah. all of that stuff is not what the reactionaries at the time thought you know there's i've seen a clip of uh wkrp in cincinnati going around with the thug rock band who are mm-hmm. their stand in for punk rock and that really is eye-opening to what people really thought of this music at that time if you go back and you look all of these bands were panned by the critics they were panned by other other musicians they were you know the labels wouldn't touch them the machine would not touch them and now you know they're in the rock and roll hall of fame one band i feel like should probably get talked about because they weren't talked about when they existed is death. Um, sure. What, what do we know about them? What we know is that everybody, everybody saw the documentary and now want to say that they invented punk while, um, (laughs) I like the documentary and I like their music. 
100%, they're not playing anything that the MC5 and the Stooges and um, Alice Cooper and Hawkwind were not pay- playing two years earlier. The difference being is that they were all Af- African-American, which was sure. unheard of, basically, in and that w- scene. Once again, who covered them? And no actually, idea. I'm going to push back on that. This, this like punk was all white kids is a lie. Um, if you look at early punk bands, especially on the West Coast, you're going to find a hell of a lot of Hispanic people. Oh, that's a interesting. A lot. Okay. Uh, Alejandro Escovedo, uh, you know, well-known alt-country guy. He was one of the main guys in the band, the Nuns. The Zeros were the Mexican Ramones. Elvez was in the Zeros. Um, you know, Black Flag had multiple Hispanic members. Dez, yeah. You know, um, Dead Kennedys. You know, Klaus Fluoride is is black. Uh, you know, it makes sense brains. from a California perspective with the sort of mixture of sure. cultures and stuff like that. It's the, less, I think, less expected with regards to the Midwest, which the, people regard to as being very white. Maybe, uh, you know, and you get into like, you know, middle of Michigan or, or middle of uh, Ohio or Illinois or something. But you get to the big cities, you get to Detroit, you get to the college towns you're going to find much more um, much more integration. You're going to find a good number of Asian people as well. And the, uh, the DC punk band, uh, GI, Government Issue, mm-hmm. uh, their leader was actually the son of, doc- of uh, Senator Daniel Anaway, who is a oh. Polynesian, Hawaiian. So Interesting. There, there, was a, there was a much bigger contingent of um, LBGTQ and definitely of non-white people in punk rock than the media ever portrayed. And it's not just the ones people know, like the Bad Brains or Fishbone. Let's roll this into the 90s, because we're we're just about there. Um, So my, and and Jay, I wanted you to share your, like, uncovering of what would be considered garage or or, um, lo-fi or high-energy rock, whatever you want to refer to it is in the like mid to late 90s you started seeing bands that had like a punk rock feel but they were just like different there was something different about them i think the first one was rocket from the crypt where i was like this band's punk but like what's going like they're so weird and different and there's horns and this guy's got a really different voice um that was probably my first exposure to something not being what the major record labels were trying to sell at the at that point do you ever like a a moment where you realize that um yeah i think of you know hearing john spencer but that Mm -hmm. felt like an anomaly like i didn't get a sense of like oh there's going to be a bunch of john spencers it really i don't think it really codified for me until i heard super shitty the max by the helicopters
that it it hit me that oh my god like this is a this is going to be a thing like just the energy around that record and just it was so melodic but noisy and garagey and, and had such that such a high energy to it that it felt like very different very distinct like it had a sound that like didn't sound like anything else it was unmistakable when you heard it like at least for me you know um for what was going on at the time that this represented something going on and pretty rapidly i went down that rabbit hole and started to realize okay there's all these other bands around them and but that for me was really the moment where i think the light switch flipped on and i saw you know the this whole genre emerging and dug into it it was a lot of it was because of big takeover magazine that was like my gateway because i that had hundreds of reviews in there of stuff i didn't know so i would just like go through there and be like well what's this what's this i'm just like reading through and like there was always a recommended if you like or you know these are the bands that they sound like so there's all these things that were happening with regards to the late 90s where you're like i've never heard of these bands but this sounds really interesting and they're connected to this band or this band. And when we moved to Columbus, I think that's when it sort of solidified that there was this sound because there was the, the Turks, the New Bomb Turks, who were, are more on the punk end, but were definitely championing these bands by bringing them into town. So yeah. you saw like, we saw can the I, helicopters I, and, and those just bands. Inter- interject here that that is one of the common threads of all of these scenes of the original garage rock of the original punk rock and of the grunge grunge scene is a lot of these bands at their core felt like they were supporting each other rather than competing with each other cover each other's songs play on each other's shows share information about what clubs to play what magazines to to send promos to um that that kind of thing rather than trying to you know dominate a scene and rather than you know the competition was you know can we can we you know outplay each other on stage in a i want to say collegial kind of a way rather than a we're going to destroy you kind of a way yeah and that's that's kind of part of the spirit to the energy as well because they're bringing each other in which means they're also bringing the audience in they're not trying to put up a wall of of this is just for our you know our special little group they weren't gatekeeping necessarily and they also weren't gatekeeping with their sound so yeah we can do that like fuzzed out you know high tempo high energy rock song but we can also do an r and b slow jam or you know somebody can whip out the farfisa organ and we can yeah. you know we we can cover you know 96 tears or runaway or whatever and i think that regional aspect like even in then as as I was becoming aware of it, part of it was because we were in a band and and getting exposed to the regional music scene by participating in it. So you start to see like, oh, wow, there's all these bands playing, you know, on a pretty regular basis that have a sound that's somewhat similar and this, you know, punky garage, high energy thing. And then you start to realize like, oh, well, that's happening not just in, all, in, these, in Columbus, but it's also happening in Cleveland and it's happening in Detroit. And it's happening in Chicago and all those bands are kind of have a network and a camaraderie of like touring and supporting each other. So I think it, it aligned to sort of our own personal experience of being able to see firsthand, like not only listening to it and enjoying it, but also just seeing some of the mechanics of how it worked as a 
sort of a community, which was really cool. Can you talk about, um, there's a name that was around the, the high energy scene um, in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, Scott Morgan is sure. a guy that came up. I, I heard of him because he's on, I think it's the third Helicopters record. He sings on a verse um, on one of the songs. And then Nikki from the Helicopters, I think, plays on the Hydromatics album that he sings yeah. on. And it one, seemed yeah. like he was this elder, unrecognized okay. like elder that these guys were paying homage to. Sure. But I never really so, knew his backstory. Everybody take a drink. Just going to say Ann Arbor. <laughs> um, he graduated with his brothers from Pioneer High School, which is where Bob Seeger and Iggy Pop and Bill Kirchin of Commander Coding of Lost Planet Airman and one, Roger Miller of Mission of Burma and Ken Burns, the documentary. They all went to high school there. Uh, Scott, Bob Seeger and Iggy were and probably the Ashtons, which I haven't confirmed. And Dennis Tech from Radio Birdman was around as well. Uh, but a bunch of them all graduated within like two or three years. So it's likely they were there at the same time. Uh, Scott had was considered to be one of the best blue eyed soul voices. His band, the rationals uh, did a lot of covers. They had a massive local hit with a song called respect, which you might've heard of the rumor for a long time was that uh, Aretha's manager had heard the rationals version. And that's what had inspired at least the, um, arrangement of her version so they had they had a lot of local success um their one of their tracks is on the nuggets box set their kinks cover uh after the rational start to fade he joined a succession of bands there was a rumor that he was invited to sing for earth wind and fire who knows if that's true he was in i believe sonic's rendezvous band which mm -hmm. is fred sonic smith husband of patty smith his post mc5 band uh, which, by the way, gave Sonic Youth their name. Their one single, City Slang, is considered a classic. So Scott was playing with all of these, these you know, major players in what we consider to be garage rock or proto-punk. And into the 80s, kind of faded into the background as that music became, you know, old passe or whatever. And I guess the helicopters rediscovered him through exploring that whole era of Ann Arbor rock and roll history. And he was still around playing. He had a band called the, called Scott's Pirates. I believe, I don't remember what else he was in. He might've been in Dodge, Maine. I haven't looked it up. But you had this incestuous scene where you had the remnants of the Stooges, the MC5, Radio Birdman, um, Mish Ryder and Detroit Wheels, all, all of those kinds of bands, those members playing with each other in different configurations. And the helicopters got a hold of Scott and they brought him on board. And I want to say it was the By the Grace of God album, maybe, that he has a couple tracks. I'm either that or High Visibility. One, one of the two. One I'm of thinking. those. I have to say uh, that just triggered a memory for me. When I was buying cassettes at Kmart in the 80s, uh, I would often buy them at the count. At, like when you were checking out, there was like cheap cassettes, mm -hmm. compilations. And one of them that I bought was the best of Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels. And I would just listen to the good golly Miss Molly um, medley over and over again, like on my Walkman while I'm delivering newspapers. Well, that, that's also a great, a great example of, of the garage rock thing where they were taking that that sound and revving it up for the for the time period. Right. So but that that's where Scott Morgan comes comes in. And okay. that's where the hydromatics 
Uh, side note, when I worked downtown Ann Arbor and I would walk home like every other night, I'd see him walking downtown like I'd pass him literally on the sidewalk. sure what he's doing these days but 100 percent, he's one of the the kind of pillars of the what you know grows this whole sound that becomes punk rock that becomes grunge that becomes this high energy rock and roll sound that we're talking about and and i think it was 2002 my brother and i are in helsinki finland and we're uh somebody told us oh you got to go to this bar it's called bar loose and we're like okay it's like oh the uh you know, some of them, you might see the flaming sideburns there. And I think the ultra bimbos basis player work works there. So my brother and I walk in and we're like, that logo looks familiar. Bar loose. Why is there a big white panther on the wall? Wait a minute. This is an Ann Arbor themed rock and roll bar. That's all about the Stooges, the MC5, Scott Morgan, um, just all of it. And we were like looking around like nobody back home is going to believe us. <laughs> that's so awesome. we took photos but uh, you know um over there you would run into people that were part of the high energy scene and they knew who scott morgan was they knew the records because the network of fans there would play them for each other they would have you know um not just bands playing but there was also a whole culture of people in the bands would DJ and I'm not talking like dance DJ and I'm talking like a small club where they'd have a box full of 45s of old pop R&B punk records and you know they just you know you might get a sonic or, or you might get a sonic rendezvous band song in there you might get a rational song in that set right next to you know some Swedish pop song from the from the 60s and that um that kind of leads into what would happen in the early 2000s which is you get like these you know there was like a flood of all of a sudden these bands like detroit had uh electric six was playing in columbus all the time they actually they were called a different yeah. band they're called the wild bunch i think mm -hmm. yeah before and we would they would be playing to like 20 people at a bar in columbus and then all of a sudden the electric six has a big single and then we had like the dirt bombs were playing down here all the time and the detroit cobras and that's when the von bondies had a big hit and you're like, what's, how is this being, how, what's going on? Like these were bands that like nobody cared about or, or a sound that nobody cared about five years ago. And now in the early 2000s, like the refused break up and, and mm -hmm. Dennis Lixon forms the International Noise Conspiracy, which is very garage punk oriented sound. Uh, obviously you have the Ohio with the white stripes and then the Black Keys um, integrating a garage and the Black Keys leaning more on that like R&B blue side of stuff in a lot of ways. All of which comes very much from the band The Gun Club, who are one of the, the great L.A. punk bands. And, you know, to the point that once again, The Gun Club is being covered by these bands. Right. And I think, wasn't there a, a two-piece band 
was it the flat duo jets yes that i felt like a lot of these bands were taking inspiration from yeah well and the other thing is there had been this whole rediscovery of these more obscure garage bands during the the 80s and 90s whole record labels like sundays and norton records were just putting out the uh the you know these reissuing these little records that nobody had cared about when they came out or like a handful of people had and that was starting to go out into the networks of these young young you know bands and they're like oh that's a cool song let's cover that nobody knows it or you know uh we can play blues and punk together the same way the gun club did or the, the you know the same way that um what duo jazz just so many bands the cramps any of those bands the the bands that you were mentioning tim that start to break um a little bit in the early 2000s that that's really the white stripes kicking the door open isn't it like once they sort of in 99 fell in love with the girl yeah have a hit then all of a sudden there's the flood of like radio and labels trying to you know manufacture the next big thing seems to happen and you see the so, vines and the von Bondies and like strokes this whole, so yeah. i can speak to that a little bit because um there's a band called mazinga that my brother managed and we put out their record and their drummer is don blom who i went to high school with who was also the drummer and one of the founders of the von Bondies. so i was kind of on the periphery of that scene Mm-hmm. You know, this is going to be the episode where I name drop everybody I know. Do it. So <laughs> we're here for it. <laughs> um, that scene was a little bit different. Um, the Von Bondies came out of a band called the Baby Killers. Uh, they were, you know, they would play basements around town. What happened, my understanding is their guitar player got friendly with Jack White. And so the Von Bondies became the little brother band um, to the white stripes for a while and they got to go on tour don was also in a band called megahertz on flying bomb records that was also playing in this kind of sound and space that had some regional success and largely the von bondies were able to be carried through with their association with the white stripes and one of the issues that i know for a fact was going on is that jack white was kind of playing kingmaker and that he was able to select the local bands that he wanted to highlight mm. and that he was associated with sympathy for the record industry records and they had good distribution they were the darling of all the fanzines and they were really the ones that, that pushed the white stripes in the underground additionally and with all of these bands the big breaking point or lack of breaking point is seems to be the british press the british press didn't love the helicopters they weren't going anywhere yeah. The British press didn't rave about soundtrack of our lives. They weren't going anywhere. Um, the Bell Rays is another band that was an amazing band yeah. that fell a follow of, of this. Yeah. Um, so that scene kind of had its own thing. And also like the strokes kind of the seemed at least to me, is the Johnny come lately to the scene. They were kind of like been following this scene. When I heard them in 2001, I'd been following the scene for about three or four years. Uh, you know, I'd been involved in it and the strokes seemed to come out of nowhere. They always sounded a little thinner, a little more, I don't know, um, folkier, a little, little less rocking and a little yeah. less rough than a lot of the other bands in the scene. And I'm constantly amazed at how successful they were. At the same time, a lot of people were getting into bands like the Gaslight Anthem that were definitely these more epic Springsteen sounding 
you know, bands. Right. Do, do you any, that's a really interesting point about the British press. I was racking my brain trying to come up with what we would define as garage rock bands with that sound, at least, and trying to find examples from the UK. Um, didn't, so didn't think of any, but it, I guess the, my second... the big, the big ones from that era from the UK were like the head coats. Okay. And like mm-hmm. all of the bands around them, but that's all the Billy Childish stuff that's really left over from this underground scene from the the 60s through the through the 80s. But did any of the the um Nordic or um North American bands break there? Um know. so the Hives to a certain extent I think did. Yeah. They would the Hives are, are in my opinion very much a little brother band to the Helicopters. And to that whole scene that was going on with the Nordic countries, and I and I met them in passing. They're very nice people. They they put on a great show. Um, but the the ones that really broke well, there's there's two parts to that. One of them had nothing to do with the press and had everything to do with Bruce Springsteen. Strangely enough, so the Hives would be the one, the probably the most successful one. And there was a band Sahara Hot Nights that had some yep. buzz for a little while. Yeah. Um. So the Bruce Springsteen connection. Little Steven from the E Street Band starts his Wicked Cool Records. He goes, he makes his Netflix series in Norway, and he gets hooked up with the Laundrettes and the Cocktail Slippers, who were part of that initial scene of, of uh, high energy rock in the late 90s. And he brings them over and he signs them to his label and he puts their records out. And because of being Little Steven, he gets them in places like Best Buy, he gets them on his TV show so they get exposure. Now, none of those bands are huge. None of those bands have, you know, gold records or anything, but they found a certain audience, I'm sure, because of that exposure. In the U.S.? or in Yes, the, in the U.S. Yeah. And then he has a serious radio show yeah. a couple years later. And I think it's still going. Little Steven's Garage. I thought it was a station. I think they made it, it into station? a full station. Yeah. He's had a, it's been different. Iterate. There was a podcast. There was a, you know, syndicated show. But yeah, he's championed, a, a, you know, some of those bands alongside, you know, the Ramones and whoever else. Yeah. And this when I looked up, like, what was the garage rock of the UK? Was much different than what I expected, like they referred to like Franz Ferdinand and Block Party as like right. that's which I do not consider. No. Like that to me is in the same vein as Interpol mm-hmm. and these like early 90 or early 2000s, um, you know, just the next evolution of what would be alternative that was like yeah. drawing on, you know, post-punk and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, I, I think a band like Art Brute might fit in there. Yes. Art but Brute, the Libertines. I, um, I've also heard that, uh, what is it? Um, the Arctic Monkeys were inspired by the Hives. I can, I mean, on the first record, definitely I can hear that. I was going to say, like, if you had asked me back in like 2002, 2003, like, who are you going to put your money on, the hives or the strokes? I would have been on the hives. Like, yeah. they had such, and yeah. I was just re listening to them the other day. Their songs are so much better. Do you remember? So catchy, so well put together. It's, Do you remember the Foo Fighters dressing like the hives on MTV? No. <laughs> wearing, wearing all black with the white ties. That was the thing. Like they seem made, yeah, for for visual appreciation because they were had that look. And I was there, like, oh, there, this is... 
Yeah. There were some bands, like I was thinking about that. Like there was a bit in the revival. I don't know if this is a new idea, but I mean, obviously the white, white stripes had a visual aesthetic Mm -hmm. to kind of counteract. It felt like in the hives and even the Donna's, you can even say the helicopters a little later Mm -hmm. as they like stage moves kind of like become this theatrical choreographed, like over the top thing. You know where they got those from though? MC five. Yeah. That's literally them doing the MC five. But there was like this juxtaposition that was kind of interesting in this scene of like this really packaged, um, you know, visual aesthetic and or performance, choreographed performance against this music that just sounds like pure electricity and mm-hmm. fire, like the rawness and then the polished coming together was a really unique kind of fun aspect of this as well, which obviously the white stripes are, or I'm sorry, the, the hives are probably best known for with those suits. So what what I would say is that once again, what I was echoing what I said earlier about this is just the reduction of everything back to the basics of rock and roll and filtered mm-hmm. through the influences of everything that's come since and the technology of the time. So they got the, the recording technology and the speakers and the fuzz boxes, and they're all listening to Chuck Berry and ACDC and, uh, you know, the Ramones and Kiss and Black Sabbath, but also you know, screaming trees and the damned and like all of that stuff. So I think to me, the most distilled version of this whole thing are these compilations. Are you familiar with these fistful of rock and roll compilations? No, but I know there's a ton of different excellent so, compilations. I have a few actually, but I'm not sure which ones at the moment. But so I- this is these were curated by Sal from the band Electric Frankenstein, who are major players in this whole scene. Yeah, they're from and, Seattle. Uh, They're from, I think, Jersey. Oh, okay. So my understanding is the deal was these were started to be issued in 1999. And the idea was there was going to be one a month until the year 2000. And this was supposed to highlight the state of rock and roll at that point in time. And they got through six with the original label. And then they stopped coming out regularly. And eventually, years later, they were finished up. Um, Additionally... In addition to featuring the bands, there was also they wanted to feature different artists who making flyers and whatnot for the scene. So everyone is different. And actually, I might this might be my buddy Tony's from Mazinga. This might be his cover. I just randomly grabbed it. That is definitely his art. He was the bass. He, he's the bass player for Mazinga, and he's a comic book artist and one of my best friends. Um, additionally, the liner notes, which you can't see because they're really small. This is <laughs> Sal's history of rock and roll to that point as far as naming influences bands scenes where the basis for all the music on these compilations is coming from which is quite ambitious see i I love that because some kid is going to be digging through cds in some record store doesn't know what he's looking for and just happens upon that cd maybe takes a chance on it and then reads that and is like whoa what is all this information i mean cool covers and like i'm just going to read really quickly this number one oh that's number three here's some of the bands the toilet boys the valentine killers the stuntmen the stitches adz new american mob libertine um rocket four five five who are from detroit Mm -hmm. uh the sinisters the bullies jeff doll the hookers the lazy cowgirls these are all bands that were definitely 100% floating around this whole scene that whole time. Some of them longer than others, but 
the idea was you might have the helicopters and the glucifer on one, but you're also going to have some bands you've never heard of and you're never going to hear of again. It seemed like in the last, I don't know what you want to say, like 15 years, like after the helicopters kind of called it quits, a lot of these, like, I guess you'd say er, late 90s, early 2000s, garage rock bands, high energy bands, there seemed to be like, people taking the idea and twisting it. Like I'm thinking of like a Ty Siegel or Jay Riotard, um, the black lips, like that kind of, those kind of bands where like, you're like, this is definitely in that vein, but they're doing different things with it. And that seems like the next, like Ty Siegel plays with a billion different people and Mm -hmm. is always putting out records in different names and stuff like that. Um, It becomes like a, I mean, what you're describing are kind of like solo projects where you bring in people and like quickly make records versus the, I think probably why this is going to not maybe ever happen again, which is worth maybe talking about is it requires like groups of people getting together in their garage or in a space and like mm-hmm. actually playing music together every day or every couple, you know, every time, a couple days a week and, and performing. And like, that's, so before we talk about why it's not going to happen again, we probably need to talk about why these bands had limited success. Sure, White Stripes, Strokes, The Hives had some success. But you've got, why would did that not translate to the feeding frenzy that yeah. you saw, say, after punk broke when every, every label was looking for their punk band? Or yeah. after, you know, Guns N' Roses broke where everyone's looking for their Guns N' Roses? Or... After Nirvana breaks, where everyone's looking for their Nirvana. So the white stripes and the hives and strokes break. Why is there not the feeding frenzy that there was or seemingly? I think there and was a tiny bit. Sure. There was a moment, but none of those bands. Like the vines the next, got pushed. They didn't get, like, did the, they didn't get the next step. Like they didn't right. get the. I mean, I remember at this time. At this point, we're, you know, sort of into the early 2000s. But I, I just remember, like, so desperately wanting the helicopters to get some kind of break here. I'm like, so you know, if somebody I, would just put them on a TV show or, like, any exposure, especially, like, you know, they're three or four albums in when they're writing mm-hmm. super hooky songs, you know, it's, it's very accessible. And then their performances are just these on-fire, you know, theatrical amazing performances it was just mind-blowing to me that they just needed that extra little push by somebody i have an answer for you on that unfortunately so 2002 by the grace of god comes out which is maybe their most accessible album yeah um there is no reason that american hard rock classic rock radio should not be playing the singles off of this Mm mm-hmm Except for the fact of everyone take a drink, Telecom Act, collapse the radio industry, <laughs> homogenization, blah, blah, blah. The other part of that, which we really haven't talked about to this point, was Clear Channel also took over managing clubs and booking agencies, effectively killing the minor leagues for these bands yeah. to become regional and then national. Mm-hmm. Anyway. By the grace of God, like sells, like goes gold in Sweden, wins a bunch of Swedish version of the Grammys. They take it to New York City to hand in the master tapes. The, you know, the, the, the label's already paid for videos to show on MTV Nordic. 
The label refuses to release it in the States or give it any promotion. It winds up on some obscure little label that has no power, no money behind it. It's basically the label sunk, sunk them, in my opinion, in my understanding. Sub Pop mishandled them. And then uh, Universal Records, who is their label in Europe, mishandled them in the States. They don't seem to have had the vision of, let's get this on radio in Cleveland, Detroit, Seattle, Fort Worth, Atlanta. Um, you know, all of these, these places where they would break a hard rock band that maybe appealed to more working class, more, yeah. you know, guys that are into muscle cars or whatnot. Yep. You know, MTV is a non-entity at this point as well. So you're not going to get those high energy visuals. Well, it is and yeah. it isn't because do you remember when the Strokes did like a in the round performance on MTV to a bunch of like teenage girls? They did. No. They took like a half hour of like primetime MTV and they had an audience of like teenage girls and the Strokes uh, played live. I, I should I should admit like what 30 I said. 30 minutes. And, and it was like. Oh my God, they're trying to Beatles the yeah. strokes. Uh, that TRL is a big deal, but these guys yep. are not going to cut on TRL. Right. At this no, point, exactly. Headbangers Ball, which is where they should have been launched, yeah. is, is dead. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because you have, they're competing with at this point, Linkin Park and, you know, those kind of bands. It's, there's no room for them in, in this very narrow, uh, marketplace of now. Have, have you seen the documentary Good Night Cleveland about the yeah. helicopters tour? Yep. Which I'm in the background of. Um, my brother's got a much bigger scene in it, but I actually I, have it on DVD somewhere around here. I need oh, I've got the DVD as well. I do um, not have the DVD. <laughs> you know, I, I'm I'm sorry. I'm in it. I have to have the DVD. Well, uh, sure. That that really showcases how they were playing medium sized clubs and getting. Not a lot of great kind of buzz necessarily. Um, yeah. yeah, it just, I don't, I don't think that there was a vision in the industry. And I, quite frankly, no. quite bluntly, the industry didn't want them. The major labels and Clear Channel and third party, what, what, what were they? Third party radio consultants are colluding at this point in time to make as much money for the industry as possible on the hit for the quarter mentality and a band like the helicopters has no place in that. Yeah. Right. The only hope is that now 20 years later, 25 years later, somebody's going to put them in a soundtrack and they're going to get the Kate Bush treatment. <laughs> you know, oh. you're that, right. That, yeah. That they're going to start getting placement on TV shows and, and whatnot. And they've had some, the flaming sideburns have as well. The flaming sideburns wound up in that. So the wires, I recall. And they still didn't get a bump. But then again, I just mentioned Kate Bush and Stranger Things. The yep. Cramps got a very big, you know, showcase in that first season or that those most recent uh, season of Stranger Things and got nowhere near the bump that Kate Bush did. Right. Right. To be uh, to be fair, Kate Bush was used like seven or eight times. Yes, you are correct. In that show. It wasn't just one time that they like there's a. um they do like an edit of separate ways from mm -hmm. one scene, which is actually really cool the way that they edit it, but it's just one scene. And I was like, oh no, is this going to cause a journey revival for separate ways? And it didn't the way that the way that Kate Bush did, but Kate Bush, because it was so important to the narrative, they used yeah. it over and over again. So it kind of became a, 
uh, an earworm because of that. Um, so we, we talked a lot about the helicopters. Can I just mention the other, what I consider, yes. you know, Seattle has the big four, right? It's Seattle, Nirvana, Alice in Chains, Pearl Jam, and Soundgarden. To me, the big four of the Nordic bands of helicopters, Turbo Negro, Flaming Sideburns, and Galucifer. Those four generally cover this, the, the major sound of the main sound of that scene. And then you, I have to mention the women who were involved in the scene. I already mentioned the cocktail slippers and the laundrettes. Uh, there's also the ultra bimbos, Menson, the Voladoras, Patsy Walkers, a whole bunch of, of women that were in that scene making music, you know, uh, from the bubble gum of, you know, was it the, uh, the acid house? God, I can't remember the name of the band. Anyway, um, they have a song called my heart is a stone, which everyone should look up from that to this band misdemeanor, which are almost like stoner sludge metal are part of that scene. Let's uh, I feel like this would be a good spot for us to talk about. Maybe if people who aren't familiar with this scene that we're talking about, maybe each of us could pick like a few records, maybe one or two, two or three, whatever you want to do that you would say, oh, if you want to hear if you want to get an idea what this sound is, this high energy garage rock revival 90s to early 2000s, like what would be like two or three records that you would recommend, Eric? Okay. Um... I'm going to go with uh, Helicopters by the Grace of God as being a great accessible way into this. Um, you can, from there, you can either work your way forward or back. I don't think there's a bad Helicopters record. I think some of them are uh, more accessible than others. And some of the later ones maybe will take a little longer to get into because there's such a shift, but I think they're all great. But by the Grace of God is where I would start with the Helicopters. Um, from there, I'm going to recommend actually a 2000s album that that's, you know, my favorite album of the 2000s. And that's Bimbo Wizard by the Ultra Bimbos from Finland. Uh, that's just, to me, a masterpiece of rock and roll and distilling all of the things we've been talking about. And then from there, um, I'm just going to throw out two compilations that people should check out. Uh, definitely the first volume of Fistful of Rock and Roll is 100%. Uh, worth looking at um and then the on the the nordic side um either of the swedish sins compilations set are 97 or 99 are, are well worth checking out and you're going to hear different sounds from different kinds of bands that might be <clears throat> excuse me revved up or overdriven or you know they might be organ driven 60s garage rock throwbacks but there's always something good on those compilations Jay, what about you? Do you have two or three favorites from that era? Yeah, I won't cover the helicopters. I think Eric did a great job of that. Um, the International Noise Conspiracy, I think that's a 99 or 2000 record. Uh, it's, it's very accessible. And it's got that organ, which isn't always there. But to me, just as soon as I hear that, I think of like 60s garage rock. Um, and some great songs on the on the first record record survival sickness.
The Donnas, we didn't talk about the Donnas, but I think they're a great example of like the spirit, the DIY kind of Ramones type songwriting, maybe even more bubblegum than that. Um, you know, young people kind of learning how to play their instruments and writing songs together. So I think American Teenage Rock and Roll Machine and the, uh, the self-titled have that garage sound as the band progresses, just like the helicopters, they get cleaner and more like hard rock sounding, but those to me sound very very uh garage and maybe the last one would be the hives the first two hives records mm. um barely legal and Vinny vid vicious um again just especially the first one i those songs are so fast but so melodic and hooky it's it boggles my mind how they how they pull that off but both of those records um you know it starts off with the first one a little bit punkier and noisier um and then again the band sort of tightens their sound up and you know ups the production value but it's definitely got the that garage sound on the on the early records well i'm not going to mention the hives and the helicopters since you guys covered them but they would be on my list <laughs> Uh-oh. um probably my the one that i go back to very often is glucifer's tender is the savage i absolutely love that record i was so lucky to find a vinyl original pressing for like 10 bucks five years ago in a half price books and now, like, you're not going to find it for 10 bucks. Um, that one, and a band that we didn't mention, and I don't know if they're like revered or hated, but I always liked the first Mooney Suzuki album, People Get Ready. Um, oh, it's just so band. energetic. And I love that vibe that they have on that record. Um, they didn't really capture it the same way ever again. But I, I really dig that. And then I also want to mention a UK band that, um, again, I don't know if they're like completely garage rock. They're a little more polished, but the Kaiser Chiefs first album, Employment, is a lot of fun. And it's it's got the vibe and energy of a garage rock band. It's definitely not Britpop, even though they're a British band. Like they are completely abandoning any aspect of like, the Travis Coldplay, British Sea Power, like big British rock sound, and just stripping it down and writing little catchy. I predict a riot is like one of my favorite songs from that era. Um, so that's what I would go with. Those are probably debatable in terms of uh, their um, placement in in this world, but I like those albums, especially Glucifer. Glucifer, I. I still play that in the car, like for my 10 year old. <laughs> Cause there's I, so, those songs are so catchy. Yeah. I love that record. I guess I think of Lucifer as just more hard rock, but I, I know what you're saying. Like it's definitely got that raw edge to it. Same yeah, with like, Turbo Negra. I went back and listened to the early Tur- Turbo Negra stuff to see if they were more garagey. And even they were like, have like a big drum sound that mm-hmm. you wouldn't, you know necessarily think of and are the backyard babies and yeah because the backyard babies are an offshoot of helicopters right it's It's dragon from the helicopters so uh turbo negro was you know apocalypse dudes was a huge album in the underground you know in the late the late 90s and that's that's where they come in and once again these are the guys that are playing together you know the helicopters are opening for them i saw glucifer open for the helicopters on 
you know, the the Oslo stop on the By the Grace of God tour. So, you know, flaming sideburns was that Kenny from the helicopter said to me, oh, they're like our brothers. And, you know, that's really what, what it comes down to. So while a band like the Flaming Sideburns sounds definitely more 60s garage rock than the helicopters, you know, they they were fans. And you look at who has the split records together. It's like Glucifer and the helicopters are helicopters and Flaming Sideburns. Well, this has been a lot of fun. We have covered so much on this triangular round table. Uh, Eric, we have mind your brain. You might want to go take a nap. <laughs> yeah, probably. After this, because uh, <laughs> we put you on the spot with a couple ones there. I don't. Uh, I was uh, super uh, <laughs> well, happy that you you have this knowledge in your brain. And so, yeah, I need to get it recorded for the masses before it goes away. So <laughs> exactly. This is good documentation of all that information. So thank you once again um, for spending some time with us. And, and thanks for having me. The music that we all love. Um, I want to remind folks who are checking out this podcast that if you enjoyed this discussion, you can continue it over at our Discord by joining us at Patreon. There's all sorts of talk happening at uh, Patreon. I think there was a Sugar Ray revival recently on our Discord. People, year, like a year ago, there was a big Sugar Ray discussion, and now it's back <laughs> debating the merits of Sugar Ray. Uh, I think it was one of those like articles that was what band has a single that's not representative of their overall sound. Um, you know, yeah. like a lot of people go, Oh, creep by Radiohead. And I'm like, actually, no, it's right. it's Sugar Ray is the, the least yeah. representative of their sound in terms of their earlier work versus what they made them popular. Um, anyway, if you want to get involved in those conversations, you join us at Patreon. By going to dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. It's also where you can go at our uh, Patreon page to vote on the polls every month. Multi-tiered, mid-level marketing, uh, 70%. Uh, you can watch all of my picks flame out. <laughs> at least you get picks. Jay and I just sit along the sidelines, <laughs> waiting with, with joy or dread. Not usually dread, but just waiting to see what happens. What's the current poll, Jay? Uh, is it? I, I want to say it's like, like faster pussycats in there, up against. Um, I need to, salmon blaster versus salmon. Um, the the great salmon so, blaster versus faster pussycat uh, debate of 2022. Yes, we we got salmon blaster, Grantley Buffalo, faster pussycat, Alice Cooper, which was um, my pick. The I, if I were a carpenter compilation and La Tigre. Come on, where are you and getting at? We, ha we have a winner, but I'm not going to tell you what the winner is. Oh, we have a winner. Okay, well you'll have to join Patreon to find out or listen to our next episode because that's probably what we'll be recording for that next episode. Uh. Just by going to DMO Union or digmeoutunion.com. It's also where you can read the box newsletter, which comes out every weekend. Two new reviews, plus a calendar of new releases of 80s and 90s relevant music that we cover. Music, books, TV shows. Uh, Ian McIver has been a great help recently. He has been giving us great reviews of a lot of electronic and industrial music that's come out recently that I don't know much about. So he gives me a much more in-depth review. Stuff recently from uh, KMFDM, 
this week i think it's uh pig and frontline assembly and decroups i rem- i just learned that it's not dicroups it's decroups <laughs> i've been saying that wrong for 25 years ian had to tell you he had to tell him. it's like no he put a note <laughs> i know it, I saw. it was like by the way tim when you're recording this this is how you pronounce this I wanted to misspell or mispronounce frontline assembly just to mess with him. Right. <laughs> Front assembly. <laughs> line. A lot. Front assembly line. <laughs> uh, also, if uh, you want to sign up for that, you go to digmeoutpodcast.com and join the box newsletter. It's also where you can go to suggest albums for us to put into these monthly polls that produce the winners and lastly if you like what you heard please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at apple podcasts so for jay i'm tim we're out and we'll be back next week with another episode of dig me out (laughs) 